Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Bluff City Church, Memphis, Tennessee. Good morning, and I'll say it again, Happy Father's Day. Um, I feel the need to keep saying that because it's not talked about in the sermon, so Happy Father's Day one more time. Dad, you are not an example in this sermon. Happy Father's Day. Um, It is important for me to just kind of give you context of how this sermon developed. Um, I did something I never do. I have, like my best friend is here who's known me seven years, can attest this. Um, I never do this. I engaged in an argument on Instagram. I don't do that. Uh, Maybe Tom is rubbing off of me. I don't know. Not that it's a bad thing, but I... I was really proud of myself. You don't have to, but I was. Um, Engaged in some discussion on Instagram. Someone that I had known from the past was commenting on someone else's post, saying some very homophobic things, and I made a comment and said, I think that you are showing your homophobia, and um, we can agree that Christians everywhere have thought differently than you. To which this person responded, no, this has been like 2,000 years the church has agreed on this. And I thought... Okay, well, that is going to help form this entire sermon. So go into that with that conversation in mind, that interaction in mind. Um, it might be helpful for you. So we're discussing 1 Corinthians 8 this morning. Mary read that for us. Thank you, Mary. Um, where Paul encourages the powerful and the privileged members. I think Tom has talked about this a lot. That's mainly who he's writing to are the powerful and the privileged within the Corinthian church. To stop exerting what they consider their superior knowledge over the less privileged, even oppressed members of the congregation. We've seen throughout history of the church um, how Christians have wielded scripture against others to lord their freedom over others, to justify unloving behaviors and actions, and even perpetuate injustice and inequality. But Paul's basic message in this chapter is humble yourself. Your beliefs and your opinions are valuable, and the more certain you think yourself to be the greater danger that you weaponize this certainty to oppress and control others. So today's Juneteenth is also Pride Month, and I think in light of who we are as a church, in light of history, the Bible, Jesus, Paul, and deconstruction, as Christians we have a lot to talk about today. So I want to point us towards an ethic of love that defers to the weaker, the oppressed, the disenfranchised, instead of what you or I think that we know about the Bible. More than having a clear, correct, unimpeachable set of do's and don'ts, Paul's message is that it is more important to measure our actions and convictions convictions against the ethic of love Jesus demonstrates in his life and resurrection. So I want to take some time to consider the history of these movements, Juneteenth and Pride. So um, we're going to have a few short history lessons. This was inspired by TikTok. I saw a TikTok of people going around and saying, what is Juneteenth at a Christian university? And a bunch of Christians said, I don't know. And um, we are going to get informed this morning. So today you will leave knowing the history of Juneteenth. This information I got from Juneteenth.com. You can Google it later if you want more information. So it is the oldest nationally celebrated commemoration of the ending of slavery in the United States. The origin of Juneteenth dates back to the 19th century. On June 19th, 1865, Union soldiers led by Major General Gordon Granger arrived in Galveston, Texas, with news that the war had ended and the enslaved persons were now free. Note that this was two and a half years later after the Emancipation Proclamation was issued by President Lincoln. 
on January 1st, 1863. This is because even once the Emancipation Proclamation was issued, it had little impact in Texas because there were not enough Union troops to enforce slaveholding states in the South to comprehensively enact this new executive order. However, with the surrender of General Lee in April 1865 and the arrival of General Granger's regiment, Union forces were finally strong enough to overcome the Southern resistance. Thus began the celebration of Juneteenth. Initially, there wasn't much interest um, during into turning this day into a holiday. In some cases, there was blatant resistance on Juneteenth, so much so that people would bar public property to keep Afri black, the black community from celebrating. So early on, most Juneteenth festivities occurred in rural areas around rivers and creeks and could provide for additional activities such as fishing, horseback riding, and barbecues. And sometimes at churches, would allow their grounds to be used for Juneteenth activities. And eventually, as African Americans became landowners, land was donated and designated for these festivities. There are accounts of Juneteenth activities being interrupted and halted by white landowners demanding that their laborers return to work. However, it seems most allowed their workers a day off and some even made donations to food and money. For some time, the annual celebration flourished and grew with each passing year. And in 1998, at Booker T. Washington Park, as many as 20,000 African Americans once attended during the course of a week, making this celebration one of the largest in the state. So the, the, there was a decline in the celebration of Juneteenth around the Great Depression. This decline occurred for a few reasons, but one of the most significant reasons is that there was a growing unwillingness to acknowledge the history of slavery in this country, as recent as it was. And of course, we also see this unwillingness to engage with our racist past and present today, forgetting that racism, forgetting the racism of our past allows us to ignore the racism of our present as well. And in this way, racism can continue to mutate and infiltrate our hearts, minds, and societies in new ways. So this cultural shift after the Great Depression discouraged black Americans from celebrating Juneteenth and its popularity waned. Many of the positive changes that were brought about by the end of legal slavery would not last. White people in the country were not willing to relinquish their positions of power and supremacy or print of their racism and discrimination. They recognized that the threat of black emancipation and sought new ways to keep the population from gaining social acceptance and dominance. Those in power, often white Christians, began to adjust their tactics of oppression and find new legal ways to assert their dominance. Segregation laws were instituted and the white elites found new ways to perpetuate the status quo of systemic racism and oppression. This is a part of the history of Juneteenth that we must not gloss over. The Civil War was over, the Emancipation Proclamation was declared, but the changes did not fundamentally alter the prejudicial beliefs of white America in power. The Civil Rights Movement didn't fix this problem either. As monumentous and as invaluable as it was, racism found a way to mutate once again. The Black Lives Matter movement, a descendant of the Civil Rights Movement, is the most recent manifestation of the oppressed once again coming together to say that things are not just in this country. With every step towards love and justice for the black community, society and those in power have found ways to oppress people of color, from owning slaves in the 1800s and then segregation in the 1900s to police brutality and the racist origins of the imprisoned industrial complex, the black community is still fighting to be heard, seen, loved, valued, respected, and they are fighting for their lives. And this is why Juneteenth matters. This is why black history matters, because hearing the stories and remembering the patterns of oppression matters. Now we're going to talk about Pride Month.
June has been the unofficial celebration of Pride Month for decades now. While there have been individuals advocating for gay rights since the 1920s, the Stonewall Riots on June 28, 1969 are often often cited as the beginning of a robust, organized gay rights movement. And it's for this reason that June is significant for queer history. Stonewall was only one of several of the uprisings led by queer people of color. Also, it feels important to note that while the language is often used as riots, many people attest that this language was used to justify police brutality and force against the queer community. At the time, people that cops perceived as men could be legally arrested for doing drag, and people that cops perceived as women could also be arrested. They are found wearing less than three pieces of feminine clothing. That is something I learned. Uh, in fact, police often raided bars for, to search for these alleged violations. On the summer night before people, on the summer night that most people cite as the origin of pride, the patrons of the Stonewall Inn Bar in New York City, led by trans women and femmes of color, fought back against another police raid. You could have been arrested for being queer. You would have been demonized criminal for identifying outside of the cis heterosexual guideline for society. And it wasn't until the 1980s that same-sex relationships were legalized, not condoned, but you would not go to jail anymore, because the queer community and the allies partnered together to advocate for their right to exist. Bill Clinton officially made the month of June Gay and Lesbian Pride Month in 2000, and then Barack Obama made Pride Month more inclusive in 2011. In 2015, with the case of, I can never say this, Obergefell versus Hodges, um, it went before the Supreme Court and it was deemed the fundamental right for same-sex couples to marry. And we moved closer to the truth that love wins. This law didn't mean that the hate for the queer community went away. Just like the laws passed before did not cure racism and bigotry, it strikes me even now as my friends within the queer community have to wonder if they are safe in most spaces. Can I hold hands with my partner on the subway without being a victim of a hate crime? Can I attend a bar that celebrates the beauty and fullness of queerness without hearing someone yell a slur from their truck as they drive by? Or do something worse for that matter? Can I attend church with my partner in hopes to worship a God that fully loves me and fully made me without the stare of judgment? I think it's apt to note that homophobia is still rampant in this country and has often been yelled from the pulpit in most places. Even as people gathered together this year to celebrate the pride of who they are and stood out, people stood outside the streets to yell, about the God that hates them and hates who they are. The conservative church and the far right have made their disposition for the queer community quite clear in the last few months as they have shouted their anti-trans legislation. This hate and homophobia has begun to breed and bring forth individuals that are seeking active violence against the queer community, which we've already seen glimpses of this month in Idaho and in California. And this is why we tell the story of pride to remember that we are still fighting for love to win, we're still fighting for justice, and in the name of Jesus, may we listen. Which finally brings me to the text of 1 Corinthians 8. So again, to provide you with a little bit of context, Paul's not addressing any, everyone in the Corinthian church, mainly the people of power. Also, it begins this chapter of, you ask this question. So I like to imagine Paul... Um, a little less formal, a little more sassy. So he gets this list of questions and he's like, okay, you asked this question. Um, Great, you're asking questions. I love that you want to learn. But also, maybe fundamentally, you're asking the wrong question. I don't know. Let's break that down. So 
he's talking to these people who have social status and power, and who also have a reputation for not caring for the vulnerable in their community. I think that's important to partner that understanding with this text. Okay, I'll get there. Um, in this specific passage, Paul's warning the Corinthian church about eating food offered to idols. For more context, the meat offered on pagan altars was usually divided into three portions. Um, one portion was to honor, um, was for the worshiper to take home. One was for the God. And then the third portion was to the priest. And if he didn't want it, he could sell it. I was reading commentary and it was like, Christians even then were cheap and they liked to deal on meat. So that's why they were interested in buying this meat from the temple because it was cheaper. I just thought that was funny. Um, I was like, this commentator is roasting Christians. All right. I don't know how he got published. Anyway. (laughs) So this issue raised a lot of questions for the Corinthian church. They're saying, all right, so just to specify, we're into this new faith thing and we have some questions. Like, can we buy the cheap meat? We know that it doesn't matter now. Can we get this deal? And Paul's like, great question. You're understanding the fact that eating eating meat that has been given to an idol to a God that we do not believe in, that, that seems a little morally neutral. But he takes it a step further and he says, but what you're not asking and what you're not considering is how that action affects other people. And, he, and I think that Paul would say, that's the entire intention of his letter, is the understanding of your development of faith, your relationship with God, is no longer something you can separate from your relationship with other people. So the idea that you can purchase cheap meat and eat it because you know that morally it is not wrong, it is morally neutral, is no longer the important question. The question is, how does that action show love to those around me? And Paul says, it doesn't. You're not even asking. You're not even considering the people around you. So again, this chapter is asking the question of whether or not it's permissible to eat meat offered to idols. On its face, it's a relatively neutral example. Paul even says, we all know that an idol is not really God and that there is only one God. And it's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we eat it, and we don't gain anything if we do. So it appears Paul is saying that there is nothing inherently right or wrong about engaging in this behavior. But the stakes are often significantly higher. What if the freedoms we believe we have the right to exercise are hurting others? And asking us to prioritize acting in love over exercising our freedoms, Paul is privileging love and love in action over knowledge and certainty and even correct understanding. We know that we all have knowledge about this issue, Paul says. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. As he begins to address this specific situation, Paul talks first about the principles of knowledge and love. He acknowledges that, yes, they have a rational understanding of eating meat offered to idols. The knowledge is there, and they have, and they're exercising that knowledge to tell others that they have this freedom to do what they want. Paul doesn't dispute their knowledge. He doesn't say they are wrong. Instead, I think what Paul does is he redefines what it means to be right. To be right is no longer to say, I have this knowledge, I have acquired this knowledge, I now understand the moral and ethical code of the Bible. To be right is to say, I have considered my neighbor in the actions that I have done, and I choose to act in a way that is loving. I think this is really interesting. I'm going off script. 
that's okay. Um, I think this is really interesting because what I have found to be the most true as I interact with people who believe vastly different than I do is that it is often the people, the people often saying the most hateful things are the one pointing back to the Bible to justify them. And I think it's interesting because if you read the Bible, if you read this story, if you read this context, Paul is saying, your ability to interpret what you think is right is not the point. And it is not building up the church, right? So these conversations, these slurs that are used and justified by the use of the Bible are doing the exact opposite of building up the church and pointing them in a way of love. Thank you for listening to that. Um, we'll go back to the script now. And so Paul expands his argument in verse 9 through 13, briefly stating um, he's conveying to his readers that their discussion to do what they want because they can and believe that it is okay is, in fact, not the point of faith. Faith is meant to lead us into deeper acts of love for ourselves and others. Faith encompasses both what we believe and how we believe compels us to act. So this week on Instagram, I asked some of my followers, what do you think the word uh, or the term love wins means? None of you guys responded. I just want to take a note and say that. Next time, maybe engage in my Instagram polls. That would be nice. Um, don't worry, my other friends did respond, though, so I have some content for this sermon. I just I think it's really interesting because if you are in the church and you hear the phrase love wins, it is mostly associated now with um, the queer community and their push for equal rights. But I think it's fair to say that love wins is inherently a Christian value. Um, one of my friends commented on, one of my friends, I just want to emphasize, you can comment on my stuff. Okay, thanks. I'll, I'll leave it at that. One of my friends commented that he understands the phrase love wins to mean that love is telos. So telos is a Greek word defined as the end goal. So um, I love that. I think that was helpful for me in forming the sermon. To say love wins is to say that love is the end goal. Derived from the word telos is the word tetelestai, meaning the work is complete. Um, my mentor, when I was younger, had the word tetelestai tattooed on a wrist. I thought it was so edgy, so cool. I now forever know what that word means uh, and where that came from. And so to connect those things, I thought were really fun and awesome. So the idea of tetelestai, Jesus saying it is finished as he died on the cross, connected with the Greek word of telos, the end goal or ultimate purpose, I think relays to us that in the act of Jesus dying on the cross, love began to win, right? And if love is the goal, um, if love is telos, that means love was before time, during time, after time. So we see this continuation of God being love, God being present, God being in the middle of um, humanity, and then God finishing, ushering in the act of love through the sacrificial death on the cross. Love is the beginning, the middle, the end, and the end goal. The ultimate victory and the accumulation of love is found in the resurrection. That love overcomes death. Love leads us to a life of freedom, of resurrection, of a new life that is no longer bound by fear or the need for certainty. Looking at the history of the church, 
Um, It makes it clear that Christians have never had it all right or all figured out, and we will never have it all figured out. I hope that's okay to say. I stand by that statement. We're reading the book, The Sin of Certainty, right now by Peter Inns, and I think that this is what he is saying. Our students are reading it, and we're excited to discuss it. Um, Historically, the church has been wrong about a lot of things, and I think it would be ignorant to say that we will not continue to be wrong about some things. And this is a large part of why Christian history is and always will be riddled with schisms, reforms, conflicts, shifts in theology and liturgy practice, some for the worse and some for the better. We must reject the hubris of thinking that now, in the 21st century, we have finally perfected our knowledge of God and our understanding of the world. Because we haven't, and we never will. But I tell you the good news is that it is not knowledge that builds the church, but love. Therefore, the foundation of the Christian life is not being right or being certain or defending and exercising one's freedoms. No, the foundation of the Christian life is love. In other words, love wins. We hear this expression a lot during Pride Month. It is an expression of freedom for queer people. And it also encapsulates the ethic that Jesus exemplified in his life, death, and resurrection. I would argue that love wins is an inherently Christian statement. It is an affirmation that in the hierarchy of things that inform how we live as Christians, love reigns supreme. Many of you are familiar with the Wesleyan quadrilateral. I feel like an A-plus student because I included this in my sermon today. Um, So if you're a lifelong Methodist, you're familiar with the Wesleyan quadrilateral. The four concepts are scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. So this is in contrast to a lot of um, sections of faith that proclaim sola scriptura, which means only scripture. John Wesley says, maybe, just maybe, we also consider other things. Um, So that is very inherently Methodist tradition. In contrast... Looking at faith through the Wesleyan quadrilateral gives us checks and balances for each of the four components. Yes, we greatly value scripture and what it has to say, but also we look at the historical tradition of Christianity and the growth and changes in how the Bible has been interpreted over the years. We also look to reason and logic for discernment as we read scripture. We also look to our personal experiences as a way of understanding what faith can and should look like in our own lives and in the specific circumstances we find ourselves in. But privileging one of these four components over the other is dangerous. However, looking at each component, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience through the the lens of love allows us to measure our biblical interpretations, our understanding, our knowledge, and our experiences against the foundational ethic of sacrificial love that Jesus has given. So I say again, the Christian ethic then is that love wins. I want to conclude by, that's misleading. I have a few paragraphs, but I'm starting the conclusion, to be clear. Um, I want to conclude by bringing us back to Juneteenth and Pride. I just threw those stories out there. Maybe you found the connection. If not, I would love to help you explain those things. So the situation Paul is addressing in this passage is just one example of knowledge being prioritized over care and love for others. Although Paul acknowledges that the powerful and the privileged Corinthian Christians aren't wrong about their ethicality of eating meat offered to idols, he admonishes their pride for using this to justify their unloving actions. 
the racism and homophobia that we see as we look at the history of Juneteenth and Pride Month also have roots as, as ideals held historically by Christians and justified by correct knowledge of the Bible. Christians have justified slavery by the commands found in the New Testament for enslaved people to be obedient to their masters, as we have discussed before. Christians have justified and continue to justify homophobia by poor theology derived from the clobber passages, which Tom has done a sermon on before. And most disturbingly, Christians justify their apathy about homophobia and racism by telling others that they are separate from the world. And in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is telling us, your apathy is no longer permissible. To say I do what I please on the basis of what I know, even if it contradicts love, is not faith. To say I can eat meat as I please because it does not affect my relationship with God is to place a divide between love of God and love of neighbor, which Paul is emphasizing is not possible. Loving God means loving our neighbor. As we heard the stories of Juneteenth and Pride, we are reminded that we are continuing to create and allow systems of oppression to prosper. But again, I say, knowledge that does not act in a way of love towards your neighbor is not faith. Faith is the declaration that love wins and actions that continue to make it so, advocating for the marginalized and fighting systems of oppression. I told you I began at the beginning of this sermon that um, this stemmed from talking about this with someone I do not agree with. So in light of that, here are just some helpful, hint, helpful things to walk away with. Right? How do we engage in conversations with others that weaponize the Bible in a way that breeds hate? Uh, I think we see a lot of this, and you probably interact with a lot of people who have this ideal and belief. Here's some things that might be helpful. Continue to share your story. Read history. Keep listening to the stories of others. We celebrate the resilience of people on the margins who have pushed for what is right. We listen to the voices on the margin like Jesus did. We ask, what is the most loving thing? We repent, we admit like Paul does, that anyone who claims to have all the answers doesn't really know very much. And we remain humble in an effort to love. Let us pray, and then Tom will come lead us in communion. God, we acknowledge that there is so much that we do not know. But we thank you that you did not base faith off of knowing. And so we ask that as we question who you are, as we question who we are and how we are to operate in the world, that we be reminded of your guiding ethic of love. We ask that we hear the stories of those who have been oppressed, that we remember your calling for love to win, and we ask that we act in according to that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.